0: We are going to pivot a little bit from our previously scheduled programming when it comes to understanding genocide in Ukraine. We decided to, this week, temporarily put on hold our deep dive on the report we'd been looking at, which is related to Belarus's involvement in the kidnapping and re-education of Ukrainian children. Basically, children who are funneled from Ukraine to Russia and then on to Belarus for re We'll pick that back up next week. Seeing as we were hitting the holiday weekend for this particular segment, we wanted to step back a little bit and do some reflection on basically the spirit of the Ukrainian people and their culture that cannot be extinguished and will not be extinguished. Talk a little bit about cultural genocide, which has an interesting history of the word. I know, Gina, you and I are probably going to uh, to geek out a little bit on some of those explanations. The history of culture as it relates to genocide and is it in the convention? Is it out of the convention? Is it in the convention? Is it out? and where it did land, and why, and what the meaning is of that, because it was a fascinating history. From there, once we've laid that groundwork, we're going to have a general dialogue about what Russia has attempted to do in repressing that culture and why they haven't succeeded that basically, uh, because it, it really is amazing. We'll talk about religion, we'll talk about art, we'll talk about the language, the writing and poetry, film, and probably a gamut. It's, it's gonna be a little bit of freeform stuff. We'll also talk about the physical culture, the museums, the churches, the libraries, the places, the music theaters, places that are important to Ukraine's culture and what's being done to preserve and protect those. Because that's a very interesting side story as it is. And I think we expect to a little bit later on see TKD Bach join the space with us. And we're hoping to get her to, to speak eloquently on music in Ukraine and the rich history that we're seeing there as well, too. I do want to quickly share, before we go too far, the reason that uh, we've titled this segment Lavrov is Hurt and It Is Our Fault. I find it ironic that today, of all days, that Sergey Lavrov of Russia is basically saying, culture? What culture? It's all Russian culture, effectively. That he, he's very offended, apparently, by... Russia no longer being on one of the committees of the UNESCO and the which is the sure. committee for the protection Ukraine is now on the committee for the protection of cultural property in the event of armed conflict which is absolutely righteous and is apparently it's either that or it's the fact that we earlier last week said, hey, this is what we're going to talk about our next week, which is genocide and culture. I think it's the latter. I think it's not because of what UNESCO did. I think it's because we said we're going to talk about culture in Ukraine related to genocide. I think that's why Lavrov is butthurt myself. We'll leave it up to you listeners to decide as we get into the conversation
1: further.
2: I just wanted to give a really quick update. Last night, Will and Christopher very generously did some matching donations for us. Hang on. Our listeners raised over $2,500. In the end, after matching, it ended up being over $8,000 that was donated to the Murray Report for Scraft. That was rather amazing in three hours. Whoa! Holy crap! Wanted, I just wanted to say thank you, everybody. Evidently, now's the right time to come Oh my God. Thank you, everybody. It was pretty amazing. I was watching it happen. So that's why I just wanted to let you guys know that we typically let you know when we have the matching donations, how well we did and what an impact makes when somebody um, doubles the donations, matches the donations, as I should say, actually, and what a big, huge difference it can make. Very happy. Very pleased. I thank you guys all so, so very much. We will get right back to the genocide. Thank you, Will. Thank you, Christopher. Thank you to everybody who donated. That is going to make a huge difference. Huge difference in the long run. It is uh, very much appreciated, I know, by Scruff and by all of us at Maria Report. Marcus, my son, go ahead,
3: and then we'll try to get on to genocide. Now I know why they call Will the Thunder from Down Under. Chris the Yankee Doodle Dandy? Will's nickname's better. Anyways. I wanted to bring up something. I've been
4: Buddy, if anybody was going to be
5: called a dandy, it might be you.
3: After I give you thunder from down under. Unbelievable. Unbelievable betrayal. <laughs> Maybe um, just
0: doodle, right?
3: Unbelievable. <laughs> I was thinking a lot about... So I heard a bunch of people that don't understand what the word genocide means and might have cognitive issues screaming at the press the United States, Genocide Joe. Because right now, there's a lot of information in the space that Israel's performing a genocide, which, anyways, it doesn't make sense. However, it's being amplified, and a lot of people are saying it within the intentionally, cognitively questionable crowds. The point being is, I think, if you were someone that was going to be charged genocide later on, it would be beneficial to dilute the value of the word by having it thrown in the face of every world leader, or at least the ones that you hold yourself out to be equivalent to. That would be the United States leader. I was wondering if you guys felt like the word genocide is deliberately being diluted in certain information spaces by being That's thrown right. around. <laughs> if, you've ever, if you've ever wondered what the highway in Minnesota sounds like in winter, there you go.
2: I mean. <laughs> Marcus, I think that that pretty much wrapped it up, right? As far as what you're thinking, why is the yeah, genocide being diluted so much? That is,
6: I oh think it's boy. deliberate.
2: There's, there's a hand I expected to see, and, and I'm not seeing it. It wasn't yours, Will. So, anyway, we'll go ahead. We should always call on her. Gina, speak on this,
3: please. That's true. Gina, speak on this too. Why are so many PhDs doing this that know better? 100%. Will 100%. The ID3 cycle.
7: Why is the word genocide being diluted? Unfortunately, I don't know that we've ever fully recognized the power of invoking the word. It's a word we've been slow to invoke even with the genocide convention in place. I think part of it too is that several words are being diluted in recent years. We've taken, I'm going to cite an example. I don't want to sideline the discussion. I'm going to cite an example because it relates to human rights. For example, like when I have written articles on, say, sex trafficking or victims of sex trafficking, one of the things that always comes up is the sex industry and the use of the word pornography. We've also shortened that to porn and have expanded it to things like food porn or pet porn or things like that. That's a dilution right there. That's a very Kind of workaday example of how the dilution of a word in popular language can have implications for how that word gets perceived, even in more structured contexts. In this case, genocide and genocide is it's we operate with a couple of I guess you would say multi-level meanings or multivalent meanings of a word. There's a word. Words have specific uses in legal contexts. They have specific uses in certain sectors of for example business or history the same word can mean slightly different things in in certain areas of expertise and then there's what the word means in everyday language in slang and there's the fact that words are always changing their meaning language isn't static so i think it's i think it's a number of things i think too that obviously we know that russia is working hard in the information space and has been to try to wage its war there against Ukraine and against anyone who supports Ukraine. I know, for example, I, the other week was trolled by some unknown, and I do believe they were very pro-Russian when you looked at their sites, their profiles and who they followed and what they retweeted. You could see these were clearly, if they were professional trolls, I don't know. They were very pro-Russian. I had commented on something that Jason Smart had posted and I used the word genocide and it started from there and they just kept hammering and hammering and hammering at me and it got pretty abusive and I tried to handle it with a mix of just information and even at one point a sense of humor. The idea, the focus of the whole trolling session, which lasted for about an hour because I wasn't going to let it go. I was going to put up all the information I could, links to reports and just using every opportunity to spread the truth about what's going on in Ukraine. The focus was, that was the pain word right there, genocide. That was the word that was triggering them. I don't know too much about who specifically they were working for. You could tell that was something that were, was something they feared, in a sense, because they were really hammering me about it. And also something they were seeking to denigrate, dilute, undercuts. I think it's many reasons. I think that I I keep referring to it because I, I just think it is. It's truly an essential book if you're going to study genocide, A Problem from Hell, America in the Age of Genocide by Samantha Power. The the word genocide is frightening to people for many reasons because it means we have to do something about it. That's something that people are very reluctant to do about it. We've got a history in the 20th century, even since the genocide convention of consistently minimizing, denying, ignoring, turning away from, helping too late, It is a a crime that defies the imagination. It it also is something that, unfortunately, we willfully turn away from. And to maybe convince ourselves that it's not so bad and that we're maybe being a little hysterical here, maybe we do start saying it's not really genocide, or that's a little too strong. I personally have been very intentional, if you look at a lot of my social media posts and writing, and just calling it as it is, because I do feel at this moment and we should have been calling it as it was quite a while earlier in this horrific process. The arguments that somehow we are doing Ukraine a favor with this aid, to me, don't really hold any moral weight. Yes, that is in a sense true that there's a benefit for us, a very great benefit for helping. I don't think that should be the primary argument. I fully understand people may call me naive or whatever. I see this as a very clear moral issue that we need to stop this genocide because we are human beings watching other human beings be annihilated by people who have no respect for human life. We are also signatories to the genocide convention. If we don't uphold a rules-based international order, we're gonna have a very rough go of it on this planet going forward. We worked a long and hard time as as a species to get these international laws in place to bring some structure, some, some predictability, some universal rights that we could all adhere to and uphold. If we start eroding them now because we want to dilute terms, turn away from atrocities, allow dictators to pretty much run rampant and revert to a a praxis of might makes right. If you can get away with it, go for it. Just hope it doesn't happen to you. Uh, That's not a planet I want to live on. That's not a planet I want to pass on to anyone. That's my opening sermon on the subject of why is the word genocide being diluted and it is something that i don't intend to dilute if anything i intend to concentrate my use of that word to refocus this narrative on helping ukraine is a moral and legal obligation this is genocide let's get serious about this convention and let's start preventing as well as punishing and stop trying to treat genocide in the rearview mirror after all the blood's been shed and the people have been killed and the scars are lingering through generations. Let's get ahead of this as fast as possible. In the last session, I had also stressed, genocide is a process. Gregory Stanton has identified 10 stages of genocide and it's not an inevitable process. If we can stop this process when we see it in our own country, if it's taking place there or in any other country, we will be far better off, and we need to be much more proactive in addressing that process and being intentional and being aware and being courageous
2: enough to call it out when we see that it's happening. Thank you, Gina. I know I just shifted gears. i have just, I'll get settled in. It's going to take a second, I think, tonight. I'm sorry. Furious, Marcus, my son, go ahead.
3: Yes, very quick response to Gina there. I agree with you 100%. Of course, I think we're a very like minds about this heartbreaking and horrific issue. I just want to point it to everybody. The world had a chance in Rwanda with peacekeepers there to do something about genocide in a way that was super clear, honest. The UN had people there recording it, and we chose not to. This is a case where we could say, wow, we sure did le- learn our lesson in Rwanda. Here we are watching Rwanda happen over two years. We're still not doing enough. That just tears me up inside. It really does. Thank you, Marcus. You're absolutely right. G-Man.
8: Morning. I totally agree with what Gina and Marcus just said. Winston Churchill in Parliament, I think it was about 1942, said that what was happening to the Jews was a crime which had no name. And then it got a name when the Genocide Convention was signed. And since then, it's like it has no name again because it won't, we won't invoke it. The parliament recently voted or debated and um, a the more. the foreign office, refused to officially designate that as a genocide because they argue that to do so would be would require courts. They want the legal ruling on it, which isn't practical. The after the fact, I think it's ludicrous. The other thing I wanted to mention, and um, I don't know if I can stick around for the whole segment because it's twenty to four in the morning. It's been, even for me, that's quite late. I last week, last Thursday night, I was at a concert. My daughter sings in a local community choir. I was in the town church. Uh, actually, actually started writing an article and this, I haven't finished it yet. Well, they sang, she heard the junior choir and then there's the senior ladies choir. They sang "Carol the Bells three times, which at the moment is one of my favorite. And of course, I didn't know, I mean, I don't remember that song being a popular carol here in the UK until recently. I do remember where I heard it first, which was Home Alone. There is an article, the article I'm writing about is obviously not Carlo of the Bells really, it's Shedrick. It's the story of how the Ukrainian People's Republic used Shedrick and the choir that was dispatched across Europe first. And then by October 22nd, uh, 1922, it reached New York. And that Peter, that was going out of my head, the sign that they did their concert there, everywhere they'd done their concert, it caused a media storm of, what is this music and what is that song? Actually, the article I'm looking at is Shedrach or Carol of the Bells, Why the Peace of Ukrainian Origin is Worthy of UNESCO's Intangible Cultural Heritage List. In this way, Ukraine can sh- claim it sh- secure its claim on the world-famous melody and protect this unique work. This article is by Rubikia Piat. Yeah. Mikhola Ukrainian Shedrick was reworked in 1936 by Peter J. Wolosky, an American u- munition, musician of Ukrainian origin, with a new text His composition became the world-famous Christmas classic Carol of the Bells. The world still does not know enough about the real opera and the original work. The Ukraine is making considerable efforts to popularise the history of Shedric. In the spring of May 2021, it was announced that preparations were being made to include Lyotovich's on UNESCO's list of Intangible Cultural Heritage of Humanity, according to the then director of the Ukrainian Centre for Cultural Studies, Diana Ariana Frankel. I think that's totally right. Russia or the Soviet Union did a genocide in murdering, assassinating, a cultural genocide in assassinating Leopoldovich in his home or his parents' home. To me, that's the ultimate. The, the Czechist agent asked to be allowed to stay the night because, and took advantage of the family's hospitality in order to get close enough to the his target to assassinate him. If Russia is trying to say it's not a cultural genocider. It's probably not a term. Then this is an example of how they were and still are. All the culture they have is stolen from Ukraine, in my opinion. Prove or bacterial. Wrong. Prove me wrong on that. That's where that's one of the things that I, I've been thinking about in terms of the the culture of ukraine and that's continues to be able to spread and and give joy to the world thank you
2: thank you i think that we're going to get into some of this and some of the things that i would like to say in response to that i'm going to i'm going to let gina go though because i think she'll probably say about the same thing i do and uh, go ahead gina
7: Oh, I was just going to add a little dovetail to G Man's point that it's, if you look on the website of the Museum of Lantsovich in Ukraine and in his biography, it also points out that one of the researchers on his life and work said that he was killed, not because, and this is quoting her, not because of the composer of his nationality, because he was also a member of the Synod of the Ukrainian Autocephalous Church, which was the Orthodox Church of Ukraine that was breaking away, that was the national church in the earliest 20th, 20th century that was breaking away from the Russian Orthodox Church. It's a double whammy there, right, that, that you probably had the cultural as well as that. The fact that there was that religious affiliation there, too, that, that Russia felt so threatened by and the ties between the religion and the culture are so strong, just in general, religion and culture is intricately uh, interwoven throughout human history and across cultures. Just as I said, just to add to what
2: you were saying there.
1: Human history and across cultures, that is a very succinct way of putting that. Jimmy and I appreciate what you have said about bringing the assassination of Leoncevich to our attention. One of the questions that I was looking at this week, as I heard from friends Nancy and Gina about what the topic was going to be, was what are musicians in Ukraine doing in response to the war? In order to understand that, that question and to see how multifaceted and multi-layered and multi-demand the art is and also how sophisticated some of their appeals are to us as neighbors in other countries it's absolutely necessary to look backwards one of the things that i found as i was looking through different styles of music is that, sorry, I just lost my train of sight, a lot of Ukrainians are appealing to traditions from the se- 17th centuries. And that's when Ukraine was, portions of Ukraine were under the Cossack Hetmanate. As I think it was Elena Zukova said, she's a, a harpsichordist with some pretty extensive experience in music history. She pointed out in her article that it's a lot easier to make your own art on your own terms when you have a military. Many people in Ukraine, as they're looking back at traditions and traditional music, are looking back toward that time period. As Ukrainians are responding to Russians' attempts at genocide and cultural suppression, this is not their first time down that road. In fact, it's not even their second time down that road. They have done this before, they have survived this before. And they have many examples that they can look to through history. Let's take the first half of the 20th century, right? The rise of the Soviet Union. Ukrainian musical culture, right? If it were allowed to exist and differentiate itself from the myth of Imperial Russia, or the myth of uh, Great Russia and Little Russia, it would pose a threat to the Soviet Union in multiple ways. Gina has mentioned the religious point, which I think is absolutely vital. Any type of authentic or original or distinctive Ukrainian folklore or or, or folk music or folk traditions that stood independent from the really important things happening in Russia, according to the imperial or Soviet origin stories, anything distinctly Ukrainian on a nationalist level or a folklore level would have been a threat. There were also some Ukrainians who were very interested in artistic ideas of modernism under Soviet realism, that is a big no. If you're like playing around with modernist and western I mean, modernist ideas and it's experimental and it's not practical and it's not what the uh, Soviets think is necessary for all of us to come together to build a communist utopia, that's a threat also. Ukraine is a crossroads, had a history of interacting with the West. And of course, interacting with the West, also a threat to Russian imperial power. When we look at history, it was remarkable for me to see the ways in which Russia tried to exterminate the culture, sometimes by destroying things and destroying people. Or they might tie to Take credit for all the culture, as they did when the after the Russian Empire conquered the Hetmanate in the classical and romantic period. Some of the best singers in the Russian Empire—they were all trained. Many of them were trained in Ukraine. They were just taken over to St. Petersburg and. They're Russian. They they took credit for it. The other thing that they would do is that they would co-opt the traditions. You can see that in the example of the Soviet Union actually opening a school for Bandura players. Bandura is a traditional, it's the traditional Ukrainian instrument. They open the school for the Bandora players. You know what? That's a really good idea because if you want to keep control of everything and you you might miss somebody that you're going to try to exterminate, at least this way, if you create the place where the folklorization happens, where you can control the shape of that and use it as cover to eradicate the real and true and accurate traditions on the ground, then that is what oppressive, com- oppressive regimes are going to do. As Ukrainians are responding in multiple genres, in classical art music, in hip-hop, there's a musicologist at the University of Pittsburgh that studies hip-hop in Ukraine, in classical music, in folk music, in early music, in choral music, in the overlap between actually classical art music, early music movements when they musicologists go back and research to try to figure out what can we learn about old stuff that people did can we still play that today the early music the historically informed performance movements an ethno musicologist ruslana who ran your Euro, eurovision in 2004 I heard multiple people say she is an ethnomusicologist. musicologist. You're seeing the classical music, the early music, the ethnomusicology. musicology. Ukrainians were actually the first to take a photograph out into the field to record folk songs. You're seeing all of these things come together as Ukrainians look, look both forward, as they, like many musicians and many artists, look to the past for guidance and inspiration and examples about how to create and preserve and enjoy their culture under pressure and i'm really looking forward to hearing what gina and nancy and prince have to say about how this Interplays with the um, genocide convention. And I'm sorry, I've gone a little bit long here. I just feel really excited because it seems to me like, no matter where you jump into this, if you have a knowledge or just some of the big ideas from Western or probably from Eastern Orthodox music history, all of a sudden you're gonna have a chance to see things in 3D. That's true, I think no matter what genre you use as an entry point. Even if we never get there, I just had the best time listening to Ukrainian music this week. It was a feast of beauty, and I hope y'all can enjoy it as much as I did. Go ahead, Lexi.
9: Just directly to TKD, you probably know the film The Guide, the Ukrainian film. I think it's 2014 about the Bandura singers.
1: I think I may have heard about it. I haven't had a chance to uh, see it yet. I will uh, put it on the list.
9: Well, I mean, because um, what it's about Stalin actually murdered over 300. He, he attempted to wipe out the Bandura singers. I have found it hard. I saw the film in Ukraine. I it was it was new. It was in a cinema. So it was only in Ukrainian, and I didn't have anybody who could translate for me. I cannot find a, a captioned, a subtitled version of it. I, anyway, it's about this event. I don't find any uh, writing about this. Stalin called together Bandura singers for an event. Uh, the, it's called The Guide because it was a known thing that, I remember how this worked, that children guided blind Banduristas. I'm not sure whether how they came to be blinded. Anyway, Stalin summoned, was able to bring together, and the writing is that the Ukrainian history, which of course was suppressed and didn't get told until after after independence, not enough. Over 300 came, and they were all murdered. You talk about genocide, I would love to send out a call for anybody that can help find more about this, particularly to find an English uh, subtitled version of this or any other (laughs) language I might be able to follow better of this. It was a beautiful film. It's going to break your heart. It's an excellent Ukrainian film. Thanks.
0: Alexei, that's interesting. While you were talking, I did find a link to the Ukrainian bandurist chorus of North America that talks about a little bit of that exact history that you're describing. I don't know if that is the specific group associated with the film you're describing. It it definitely has those tie-ins that many conductors, ensemble members, and blind bandurists slash minstrels were charged with enticing the populace to Ukrainian patri- patriotism and were arrested and this was in the stalinist era that they're describing there so i'm going to add that link that history link to my mega thread so it'll be at the bottom there and and if you've got the name of that movie i can do some additional research later and see if they nancy, tie nancy, together
2: nancy Tech mm-hmm. messages
9: Perfect. Oh, wonderful! It it happened during the nineteen thirties. Um, something is saying nineteen thirty four to me. I'm not sure. Wow, that would put it right on the tail end of Holo de Mor. It's unbelievable. This guy was like he was not only insane in his own or a psychopath to be. To know, to pursue music and musicians and to take it to this length, it I just found it unbelievable. Ukrainian historians are clear about the fact, only we don't hear enough. Thank you so much. Thank
0: you. I do also agree that there is truly so much that we don't hear. And to TKD Bach's point, and I know what I found myself, is if you dive into just one piece, it... It flows into such amazing areas. And I do wanna share one thing. I, one link that I added to the thread today was from Olina Zelenska, who had said, today Ukrainians abroad are ambassadors of their country with language, knowledge, culture, and most importantly, with their dignity. Ukraine is being judged by each of us. If each of us convinces at least one person to support Ukraine, imagine the power we'll gain together. That that focus on culture for persistence just really spoke to me. Just what you said just now really made me think of that as well. Gina,
7: I just wanted to tie this in specifically with genocide. Lemkin, Raphael Lemkin, who, the Polish jurist who coined the term genocide, who advocated for the drafting of the genocide convention, who really dedicated his life's work to this and who himself lost 49 members of his own family in the Shoah and the Holocaust. He advocated for emphasizing culture, as Nancy had indicated earlier, there's complicated history of how cultural genocide was and that wasn't in the convention. What he saw as a process, was a two-step process that the oppressing group destroys the the victim group or the victim survivor group. They they work to destroy that. That would be the negative aspect of genocide. Then there is a quote-unquote, and this is not a value judgment, this is in terms of action, a positive aspect in that there's an imposition of the aggressor's culture on their victims. We see that very clearly and have seen it historically with Russia inflicting and imposing its culture on Ukrainians to the point of many times outlawing language. That was one of the first things that that was under direct attack. In in 1860, Zalulov Circular was issued and following that in 1876 and 1881, the EMS Decree. And these were methods to really suppress, eliminate, if possible, the Ukrainian language. Those who crafted and enforced those directives knew very well the power of Ukraine having its own language, which of course is one of the the key um, stations of culture. Its language is probably one of the best known manifestations of culture. Going back to Lemkin, that that process of not just trying to destroy the culture, then replacing it and imposing the dominators' culture on those it is trying to dominate. I think that's very important to keep in mind. Keeping focused on genocide as a process will help us to identify it more clearly in its early stages and prevent it from advancing to its later stages where it becomes that much more difficult after people have been killed, wounded. At that point, it just becomes harder and harder to stop it and then to bring perpetrators to justice, heal the wounds and scars of those who have survived. You can't bring back the people who've been killed through it. This is a life or death issue that we need to stop genocide in its earliest stages by recognizing when, for example, culture comes under attack. If, for example, a a group that's being targeted for genocide suddenly finds that its languages and customs are being mocked, that's a marker right there. That's something that needs to get called out and stopped immediately because it's an indicator of a genocidal process that could be taking shape or at least a discriminatory one that could escalate to genocide. Just wanted to keep those dynamics that Lemkin had called our attention to uh, tied to this part of the discussion as we look at the various aspects of culture. Thank you,
1: Katie. I just saw you in the back channel an article from Early Music Seattle and it looks like it references it looks like it references the the guide film that you were talking about Lexicon and it does indicate that there we ha- don't really have a lot of direct evidence that an actual massacre like that took place it talks about how the film actually uses techniques that are real similar that kind of takes the shape of some of the stories and songs that these um, blind bards would have sung the idea of the blind bard is actually it may sound familiar to you it's uh, actually something that comes up pretty commonly in in history and greek and western traditions as well we have that there to um gina's point about the positive aspects of the genocide and the imposition of the conquering culture on the culture that they're trying to displace i think it's important to remember that there are multiple ways that they can do that one way that they that they can that the the oppressing culture can eliminate the oppressed culture is essentially by redefining it according to their own terms. We see the best example I can think of that right now is if you look at how the Chinese Communist Party uses Uyghur culture in China, right? It's, oh, look, we have these people and they live in Xinjiang province and we won't call it East Turkestan. And look how happy they are, like, singing their dances and singing their songs, like the Jews by the waters of Babylon, right? It's, look how happy they are we love their culture and in the meantime they're forcing the women into marriage with han men and putting families into taking children from families and putting them into concentration camps there's two ways that i can see at least two ways that the culture committing the genocide is going to put its boot on the neck of the culture that they're trying to eliminate the one is to say our culture is better than yours the other one is to say We're going to redefine your culture, and we're going to put you in this nice, tiny little corner of the sandbox. We're not going to admit it. We're going to tell the whole world we care about your culture while we exterminate it.
2: Thank you. Yes. Lots of insight. Gina, go ahead. Just to add on to that, TKD,
7: that process, which China would call cynicization, is also taking place regarding the religions that are nominally at least permitted in in China. I know as a Catholic journalist, we have, there's a very complex relationship that the Vatican has in trying to allow, or trying to maintain a Catholic presence in China under this cynicization Chinese churches have to be registered, have to conform, and to match to the party's standards. In terms of the Catholic Church, how that plays out is there's an underground church that says, we want nothing to do with this this Vatican agreement. We're going to be the church, and that's just it. We don't allow the state to choose our bishops, which is not how the Catholic Church functions. The overarching sense is that the, the state is trying to through lawfare and registrations, trying to control a very important part of the culture, which is, we also see that in Ukraine. And we saw that with an article that I did recently, where we had a Russian official has banned in occupied Zaporizhia, Oblast, several different faiths, including the Ukrainian Greek Catholic Church and confiscated properties through these decrees, law affairs, uh, physical force, also another, and this is this factors into some of the complexities as to why cultural genocide did not make it into the convention. The process of colonialization and the co-opting of cultural elements. this plays out especially with music in the United States, for example, and those of us in the space who are old enough to remember some of these lawsuits, you had, for example, these real pioneers of what would eventually become central to rock music. You had folks who were blues singers, who were jazz singers, who were soul singers, who then inspired the legends of rock music such as the Rolling Stones and the Beatles. While the Rolling Stones and the Beatles went off to make millions with their music, the original artists were often less starving. A lot of them, I believe, were on the Motown label or that, that group of artists. The upshot of it was there was a movement many years ago to try to get some sort of economic justice for these folks. And in the course of those discussions, what came up was, let's look at the roots of what we're calling rock and roll here. We see and it traces very heavily to African-American cultures. And really, that forms so much of the core of what this genre would become. Now, the reason that I bring that up is, again, going back to cultural genocide and how this is playing out in Ukraine. In terms of can this be prosecuted, one of the reasons in the history of the Genocide Convention why, and the U.S. was among the, the the parties that was saying, no, no, don't put cultural genocide in there, because they had these concerns about, oh, are we going to be on the table now or on the hook for what we've done to our own minorities, and have we... Colonialized? Do we have things that we have to answer for too? Is this putting us on a slippery slope to account for some of those things? That's very relevant to what's going on in Ukraine and how will this cultural justice, if you will, be affected after all of the destruction that that Russia has wreaked upon it? Unfortunately, Russia is not the only nation to do that. Certainly, and we've talked about this before in the space that anytime we bring up genocide, and it's one of the reasons that people are shying away from the term because it does require a self-examination. It does require you to look at what's happened in your own nation's past and to own it and to do justice by it and to make reparations where needed and and to begin that process of authentically examining what happened before, doing the work of the healing, the justice, the reparations, and then ensuring that it doesn't happen again. So too many nations, that's something. They don't want to go down that path because they think, oh, no, we would just rather pretend that genocide over there isn't happening because if we have to look at that, then you're going to make us look at the ones that we still haven't accounted for. I see, And uh, even again, in, in a trolling situation, you get people, that last trolling episode I referenced two minutes back, the first thing the troll said was, how dare you? You don't even know your own history. I do know American history. I'm not purporting to be an expert on it. I know that we have a lot in our history that is not right and that has not been fully addressed. And I am, as an individual US citizen, committed to seeing it addressed. That's still not gonna stop me from saying, this is a genocide over here. And that's something that I think that we need to be conscious of in our discussions with people. Be very conscious of what are the holdbacks to recognizing, preventing, and punishing genocide. That's one of them, your own nation's history. Yeah, like I said, as we were moving in that direction, I thought that particular aspect of why cultural genocide didn't make it into the convention in the end, due to those concerns, was worth bringing up. That we can be thinking about Mm. how do we get this addressed? What were the ways that? What are the tools that we have? What tools do we need to develop? So, absolutely, Gina. I know that's one of the things that I had
0: looked at and included a couple of links on that history of how. Lemkin's focus on the cultural impacts being one of the early identification points down that path toward genocide and why it was so important to him and and recognizing that discomfort self-reflection challenge was part of why it was basically compromised out I did see one other quote from a Danish representative, and I even hate to call anyone out because anyone who wasn't comfortable in that convention and wanted that com- wanted compromises had multiple reasons. I think that the Danish representative had a challenge with logic and proportion to include in the same convention, both mass murders in gas chambers and the closing of libraries. While that path was obviously very clear to Lemkin. It was more difficult for those for for some others to bridge that. and Gina, to your point, some it would be just black and white. Let me look at it simply. For others, it would be okay, what happens when we self-reflect? And to your point, we should be period. That doesn't affect how we consider these things now and going forward. You know, we've got to provide that respect and that consideration. And the suppression of a culture is so difficult, takes so long to restore. That, I think, is one of the most devastating aspects of genocide, even though it's not in the convention, although it is protected by other international agreements. I wish that original part of the declaration had been kept for the same reasons. Go ahead, Gina.
7: This is where I think that we need to continue to look at genocide as a process. Lemkin had a very holistic understanding of it. He he saw it processually. He also saw that it could take. It works on numerous fronts. Samantha Power refers to this in her book, and and it sounds horrible. The term is so meaningful. It's she talked about the lack of imagination people have regarding genocide, and by that she means several things. One of them is the ability to recognize that the horrors that you're hearing about are taking place because, I, and especially now with Ukraine, I'm hearing a lot of this minimization. We've certainly seen with Russia's influence operations and its propaganda, the attempts to really push the corruption narrative, to really try to discredit Zelensky and, and Ukrainian officials for squandering U.S. aid. That's one space that it works in that we can't seem to imagine that as Russians are trying to, you know, Russian operatives are trying to throw up those narratives that you're hearing about horrific torture, children being kidnapped, limbs being lost churches and cultural institutions being destroyed that again the imagination to grasp that those horrors are actually taking place yes human beings are committing them against other human beings there's another type of imagination we need that kind of extends from that that's a willingness to be able to see the various and evolving forms that genocide can take unfortunately That's not something that we're very good at historically, is that we have certain ways, and again, because genocide, I'll never forget, and it was only a few weeks after the full-scale invasion when I interviewed genocide scholar Jeff Benvenuto, who was on the faculty at Gratz College, in Pennsylvania, and I did a podcast with him. And I said, was this genocide that we're seeing? This was before the New Lines report came out, because that was in May of 22. And if I recall correctly, this interview was in March or April of 2022. So that report was probably in process. Jeff was not on the team who did that report. He flat out said, yes, this is one of many genocides that Ukraine has suffered. Thinking specifically of the Holodomor, which had taken place, obviously, under Stalin. One of one of the things that Jeff kept saying is that why is it that we, it's so frustrating, he's a genocide scholar, so frustrating that the word is people are so slow to, to embrace it and say, yes, that's what it is. I'm reiterating the point that I made earlier in terms of imagination. We have to, again, as I said, be very alert to the forms that genocide can take in the future because we do get these certain paradigms, these historical paradigms in our head and think it has to lo- look like that, or that's the way it was over there, so it's gonna look like that. And it can start taking place in very different ways. I keep referring to what we saw in the Gorno Karabakh, or as they, the residents of it would call it, Artsakh, where you had the blockade of the Latin corridor where people, tens of thousands of people were starving. That was intentional by Azerbaijan and with some possible Russian influence, to to really create conditions of life that people were severely compromised in terms of medicines, in terms of their health, their ability to function, to have access to basic food, water, life supplies. That was a genocide taking place as, and I'm drawing a blank on his name. He was the first prosecutor. I should know his name because I've written it so many times in articles. Anyway, he was the the first prosecutor of the, the criminal court and he testified before Congress and said, this is a genocide taking place when you don't even have to fire a single bullet. That was part of what he was trying to get at in his testimony. Juan Ocampos Moreno, that was his, Moreno, I'm sorry. At any rate, imagination with genocide. I think it's interesting that we're talking about the word imagination in it regarding cultural genocide, because of course, when we think of culture, we think of imagination, we think of the creative arts, we think of handcrafts and music and costume and language and, and all the things that bring out our expressive and creative and generative side, as opposed to our destructive side. Again, we do need to have that imagining. And I, I'll submit one other example that really struck me at the time that it happened. When the Nova Chakolka Dam was destroyed, my thought was, this is using ecocide as a form of genocide, was creating conditions of life. So maybe we haven't seen that sort of thing in previous genocides. We saw it there, and it was done with intention and knowledge of what the consequences would be. That's the way we need to be thinking to stop this before it gets any further. And back to Lemkin's holistic view of genocide, going to the point of intent, we've talked in many sessions before the difficulty of proving intent, and one, we really looked at it and drilled down on the levels of proof of intent that are required, and that big one being dolus specialis, which is really almost you have to be in the mind of the perpetrator. And Lempton and the crafters of the genocide convention, and now many scholars are saying that's not what it was about. Lemton had the idea that it was really the knowledge that your actions would produce that sort of effect. The intention is not getting inside the mind of the person. The knowledge that your actions would cause this destruction and cultural genocide that's another thing it's when you're outlawing a language you know that you're breaking down not just that language the connections and the bonds between people both horizontal and intergenerationally when languages are lost it's certainly easier to co-opt the younger generation if they have no knowledge of the language of their ancestors it's easier to assimilate them that's done intentionally and w- knowing how what that's going to play out as So again, all things to consider as we look at cultural genocide, prosecuting it and determining intent, tying it in with concrete examples. Sorry to go off on a little bit of a a tangent there. Oh, no. no. Food for that. Absolutely
0: perfect, Gina. And actually, while you're there, I want to tie us back to the new lines. Um, Institute and Raul Wallenberger Center for Human Rights report that we reviewed earlier on in our Understanding Genocide sessions. That's the one that came out in July, Uh, the Russian Federation's Escalating Commission of Genocide in Ukraine, a legal analysis. You'll find that in our older threads. I'm going to add it back to tonight's thread as well. But it's interesting when we look at the broader history and the history of repressions and persecution from the Russian empire and the Soviet Union against Ukraine. Much of it, when we look at specific words and references, are still applicable with what Russia is doing today, particularly in the occupied areas. I just want to quote a few pieces out of that very quickly, because it it says these contemporary events, talking about the current 2014 through 2023, Russian attacks. These contemporary events occurred within the context of a longer history of repressions and persecution against Ukrainians by Moscow authorities under the Russian Empire and Soviet Union. Such events include, but not limited to, numerous Ukrainian language bans, an artificially induced famine that killed at least 4 million Ukrainians in the 1930s, referred to as the Holodomor. We talked about that a few weeks ago. A state pattern of targeting influential Ukrainian figures, including intellectuals, religious leaders, artists, and others, through death, torture, and imprisonment. In a 1953 speech, Raphael Lemkin, originator of the genocide concept, referred to Ukrainian treatment as the classic example of Soviet genocide, its longest and broadest experiment in Russification, the destruction of the Ukrainian nation. As long as Ukraine retains its national unity, and these are, I'm quoting him here, um, as long as its people continue to think of themselves as Ukrainians and to seek independence, so long long that Ukraine poses a serious threat to the very heart of Sovietism, for the Ukrainian is not and never has been a Russian. His culture, his temperament, his language, his religion, all are different. Of course, when you look at how long that has been recognized by, again, not just Ukraine, not just Ukrainians, by genocide specialists in the West, yet what did we hear at the beginning of this full-scale invasion, which is the buildup to it and Putin's documentation that says, they are our brothers. We are one. You cannot separate one from the other. Yet it's been clearly documented for generations. That's not the case. Yet those very people, when we look at the, what were the orders that Russia came in on? How do you split your people? You pull the religious leaders, you pull the civic leaders, you pull the intellectuals and you torture them, you imprison them, you torture them. Anyone who you cannot, any influencer who you cannot influence to be on the side of Russia, you destroy, you eliminate. And that's why those words, that is the culture, that those are the people associated with the culture now. And those are the people who carry the torch of their culture from generation to generation. And that's why they're such a threat to Russia. They're such a threat to exist, unfortunately. And go ahead, Gina, and then we'll go back to Hans.
7: The irony is, and this is a point that many people have noted, that in its attempts to destroy and suppress Ukrainian culture, Russia has actually intensified a global interest in Ukrainian culture, the language app, Duolingo, Ukraine, which is a free language app for, I, I use it, millions of people use it um, for learning languages, had a marked rise in the number of subscribers and, and free users who were undertaking Ukrainian. And it has really raised the prominence globally of Ukrainian cultures. This is the irony of that every and in so many ways, Russia's attempts to attack and subjugate and Ukraine have actually had such the opposite effect. It's rather a an interesting irony. I think that what From everyone that I talked to in the Ukrainian diaspora here in the United States and those that I had the pleasure of speaking with when I was in Ukraine over the summer, that is the sense that there is just an even more cohesive and better recognized understanding of Ukrainian culture globally and
2: a greater appreciation for it, which is something I certainly welcome. Just really quick, since uh, Nancy seems to have disappeared really quickly, I will say that I did send Nancy a link to... The podcast interview with Jeff Benvenito for her to put into the mega thread, that will be in there. You guys can go and listen to that. I actually listened to part of that. I actually never finished. There was a really interesting quote in that 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 was really interesting to me, at least that he said in there, which was not one true, oh man, can I read my own writing at this point? Not one true meaning of genocide exists, basically, depends on who you talk to. That is so the truth. It's it's something that I think we are seeing and hearing more and more as we go about what we're doing here on the space. Nancy, did you have something to add before we go to Alios, was next? No, other
0: than, yeah, thank you for that. I lost track of the hands while I was uh, crashing and returning. I am back with you and I will add to the thread while we go through hands.
8: Wow. Wow. Thank you for that. That was amazing. Do we have any opinions from the crowd? Maybe someone from France or Iceland,
2: Spain, Italy? About about what? Uh, just what about just, uh, I want to hear an international opinion. Opinion is who so we have with us at the moment. And I think we've all got uh, Canadian and uh, we have Australian, Australian, Canadian, and United States here at the moment. We do put the pod- we do put this out as a podcast for people to listen to later. This is just the time of day we happen to be in and who comes up to speak. Sorry, fear. Just of note, I have literally never met a French person in here. I find that disappointing. Oh, I did. It wasn't a good experience. Lexicon, you were next. Go ahead.
8: No, let's get that Ukrainian girl back in here who was screaming about us not talking enough
9: about Ukraine. Actually, we're all talking about Ukraine, and I want to bring in, if you'll permit, in Canada, first of the two actual investigations. First of all, more than 10 years ago, talking about Indigenous Canada, we held a several years-long process to do a Truth and Reconciliation Commission about our residential schools for Indigenous children. And you might be amazed our last indigenous our last residential school closed only in nineteen ninety six and back in the time they were started under consolidated new Canadian nation and in their back channels, members of the government, which includes the prime minister, wrote that these schools were to take the Indian out of the school. They tore away these children on the day of arrival. They took their clothing, they cut off their braids, their native hair style and dress and lapped them all into these uniforms and haircuts. And these so... They la- that they lasted so long, the last one was an outlier, just an astonishing amount of time. It was seriously an effort to, and I think we've seen schools uh, in Australia, I'm thinking of what I saw in rabbit-proof fence. At the end, uh, in the report of the commission, the lead commissioner, Justice Murray Sinclair, said that this was a cultural genocide. And I think Justice Sinclair, who is a respected Indigenous elder and, of course, a senior justice, I think that he was saying that it was through the cult, root of culture that Canada was, in fact, effecting a genocide on uh, these children, and it's so many in the testimonies which are so painful for people to draw out of their experience and that of their parents and grandparents was that, for example, some children said as adults, when we went home, we were angry. They were angry at their parents for they were taken away by force. The children were angry at their parents for letting them go. Also, many said they were angry at their parents because then they didn't respect them anymore. The schools had, as designed, taken away their respect for the language and and for the culture of their parents. Then I wanted to say that perhaps that was Sinclair's meaning that it was through the path of culture that genocide was being attempted. Is just uh, a few years ago, Canada again held a process of an investigation into missing and murdered Indigenous women and girls because the rates of the deaths of women and Indigenous women and girls is much higher than that of white women and girls. And the uh, these deaths that the and so the missing cases are not addressed with much as much seriousness at all by the press, by the police and by the media. The report of these commissioners, who were all indigenous women, very senior respected elders again, or not all elders, they said that this was a genocide. The day after the report came out, you had all kinds of senior media personages stating that you cannot use the term genocide. It, it, because the risk is to dilute the terms. These are terms you folks have all uh, mentioned, and this will be familiar to them. And what many people said, indigenous and others, and especially women said, listen. This, and so some tried to say it's, no, this, nobody tried to say this is cultural. This is really killing people and allowing people to disappear without notice. What they said is the importance of the term genocide in this case is by allowing this to go on. So you're seeing a higher than normal death of a country's, of a culture's, a people's, women and girls. Is that you're tolerating? You're being a witness and a better to the wiping out of the mothers of the of entire peoples. I think those are very interesting. I don't know enrichments to the concepts both of genocide and of cultural genocide. And people who responded to cultural genocide said, it's not any less. Cultural genocide is genocide. And I think Sinclair also agreed and clarified that, turn the justice and lead justice. And uh, I definitely agree. Those schools were definitely, they had the effect of diminishing and destroying, weakening the people so much through the instrument of education and culture. Thank you for letting me talk about that.
7: Go ahead, Gina Luxica. I've, I've covered some of that before, and you're absolutely right. The, the intention was to erase indigenous cultures through those schools, unfortunately. I wanted to flag something here just as a, a way of thinking about this and expanding on the term, and Prince knows that I'm big on definitions. I think it's worthwhile here. This whole understanding of cultural genocide or, or trying to get some legal way of saying you can't smash up our museums and take away our language and, you know, you can't attack just our physical persons because this is a part of us, too. I mean, if you look at the Genocide Convention, it's really physical and biological are the, are the terms. And just as a quick refresher, in case anyone's uh, joining us for the first time real quick in the Genocide Convention... Article two lays out the definition and what the five conditions or the five acts that are considered genocide are. So uh, genocide means any of the following acts committed with intent to destroy in whole or in part a national, ethnical, that is the word used in there, racial or religious group, as such, killing members of the group, causing serious bodily or mental harm to members of the group, deliberately inflicting on the group conditions of life calculated to bring about its physical destruction in whole or in part, imposing measures intended to prevent births within the group, and forcibly transferring children of the group to another group. So you can violate just one of those, and you've violated the convention. In terms of the cultural aspect in, in international law, because obviously we do have some laws that actually you know, including the Rome Statute, under which we had a 2016 conviction strictly on destruction of property, cultural property. The move was away from that notion of property, cultural property, to cultural heritage over time. That is a broader term because property, of course, has a lot of legal connotations. Even though it was, you know, first used in 1954 by UNESCO on the, in the Convention for the Protection of Cultural Property in the Event of Armed Conflict, over time, you fast forward to 1972, and you're starting to see the term cultural heritage, and that was in the Convention Concerning the Protection of the World Cultural and National Heritage. Later on in in 2001, you had the Convention on the Protection of the Underwater Cultural Heritage. That idea of moving towards heritage, it's broader. And it's also for things, for example, that include values, which are not things that you can necessarily touch or take a photograph of. Those are very much part of culture. We're we all have cultural values that we may or may not be aware of in, in varying degrees. Certainly, I kind of referenced the indigenous folks, peoples of North America, particularly Canada. I know when I've interviewed folks, for example, who are indigenous Catholic, there there are values there that are blended with their Catholic faith. They are they have indigenous values that are again, intangible, still very real. That's true of all cultures and and certainly of Ukraine. I I just wanted to point out that term and and how it's developed because we're we're saying culture and, and sometimes we're thinking of that in a very material sense. Cultural heritage, including those values, are, that is where the definition has moved in international law over the past, since the '50s to the present. So the past, what, seventy-seven years? We're moving in a in a better direction, which I think is a hopeful direction. That's something that shows that we're at least evolving to uh, to see that as more complex and to take the the value and the intangible aspect into account. Just to quickly read a little bit of some of the language here, the declaration concerning the intentional destruction of cultural heritage, which was adopted by the UNESCO General Conference after, and you probably remember this, and I remember my heart broke when I saw this, there were two Buddha statues in Afghanistan that were destroyed by the Taliban in 2001, and they were destroyed for ideological reasons. They were considered to be demonic by the Taliban. This declaration came about, and it says that cultural heritage is an important component of the cultural identity of communities, groups, and individuals, so that its intentional destruction may have adverse consequences on human dignity and human rights. In that same declaration, it links human rights to the duty incumbent upon every state to protect the cultural heritage of significant importance for humanity situated within its territory. It says states recognize the need to respect international rules related to the criminalization of gross violations of human rights and international humanitarian law, in particular, when intentional destruction of cultural heritage is linked to those violations. I think that's hopeful. It came out of a tragedy, the destruction of those beautiful statues by the Taliban if it if there is any hope to be found in that is that it helped us to move forward with this understanding of the importance of cultural heritage and to better articulate it in international law and documents so that we can at least advocate for it call it out when it's being violated and prosecute it when it is being violated. As I said, I'll just pull up really quickly. It was in 2016. Here it is. We, we had a conviction in 2016. This was the International Criminal Court, and the case was the prosecutor versus Ahmad al-Zaki al-Mahdi. And he was found guilty and sentenced to nine years in 2016 because he directly attacked and intentionally attacked historic monuments and buildings dedicated to religion, including nine museums and mausoleums and one mosque in Timbuktu in Mali back in 2012. That was a conviction for that, for destroying religious and funeral the mausoleums and, and buildings in Timbuktu. I think that's a significant case to keep in mind. Every time that we get a conviction like that, it shows that we as a human community are recognizing this, are willing to prosecute it and have language and tools with which to do just that. Thank you. TKD.
1: I was looking for a source that I found earlier and I haven't found it yet. One of the articles that I read was talking about how in the, this would have been the 18th century, that in Ukraine, they had brotherhoods. One of the things that the brotherhoods did was to make sure that, certain types of education and interaction were available across and between classes. That's something that changed once the once the Russian Empire came in. When you were mentioning the importance of education, that reminded me that education was an important theme and music education particularly was an important theme that came up in my research on Ukraine. Turning to something that, Gina, you were talking earlier about, I can't remember if it was the recovery of culture. Turning back to the subject of Ukraine, I want to say how glad I am that the three of you leading this space decided to take a pause for a week so that we could talk about art. Because when I went and I looked into the musical sources, it was like discovering things and rediscovering things all over again. I saw people saying that Mikola Odilecki in the 16th century in his treatise on musical grammar, I saw people saying that actually it was the first written record that we have of the circle of fifths. For those of you that are musicians and you sit down and you learn your key signatures and how all the notes fit together, the circle of fifths is something that's really important in classical music about how we Fit everything together. I actually read a I see if I could find the title. I read a piece by Ivan Kaminsky, and I actually got to look at the treatise. I got to see how Nikola Doletsky, who went to study at the Jesuit Academy in Vilnius. I got to see how he described Renaissance theory. I saw all those aspects that were familiar from when you take your medieval and, and Renaissance survey classes. I got to see how he was describing with a circle of fifths, essentially, what is the transition into tonality and uh, Baroque and classical music theory. He brought choral polyphony to churches in Ukraine. Traditionally, the chant was sung with one voice. When he trained in a Greek Orthodox Catholic church, he trained in it. a a Greek Catholic church in Vilnius with the Jesuits, he got to play an organ. He actually took the principles from the organ and then he carried them back to Ukraine for use in the Orthodox church. Even though he follows the Orthodox tradition of not using instruments, he uses parts. And you can see how his theory and how he puts the music together, it emerges from his relationship and understanding of the organ as an instrument the other thing is, those memes that are online, tell me you're from Philadelphia without telling me you're from Philadelphia. The title of Dolesky's treatise A musical grammar, that basically has in blinking red lights. Tell me you were exposed to all of the most interesting and exciting dialogue about music and composition from the Renaissance into Baroque. The fact that he calls his treatise a musical grammar, that tells me he was engaging with the biggest ideas and possibly some of the most important people that we're familiar with in the Western tradition. He took all that over into Ukraine to Ke- Actually, he went to Russia. His ideas made it to Ukraine. There were musical centers in Kiev and also Khlohiv, which, which is in the Oblast, and it's uh, near the border with Russia. It was, I think, briefly taken over by the Russians immediately at the start of the full-scale invasion. The Ukrainians managed to liberate it later in the summer. The Khlohiv singing school provided lots and lots of singers and composers to the court in St. Petersburg. Some of them perhaps may have been able to go um, voluntarily before the Russian Empire t- uh, took over. Others um, may not have had quite as much of a choice in the matter after the Russian Empire took over. They're still going to the place where all the action is. They were respected and they took all these Ukrainian ideas over there. and The uh, Russians were like, hey, aren't these Russian ideas cool? One of the most important composers is Dmitry Bortnyansky. I have heard some Dmitry Bor. I've sung some Dmitry Bortnansky, and I have heard some Dmitry Bortnyansky. And I heard it, some of the music that I heard was on a bandura. Now, Nancy had earlier put a link in about the instrument, about the history of the Ukrainian Bandurist Chorus of North America. When I found this, I fell in love with this description. Here's how the Ukrainian Bandorist Chorus of North America describes the bandura: The bandura is the instrument that best embodies the voice and soul of Ukraine. From a musical perspective, the bandura unifies acoustic principles of both the lute and the harp. This produces a sound that is emphatic and gentle resembling that of a harpsichord with a wider with a wide range of dynamics and tonal control that is an exquisite de- description if you've ever heard of mendora particularly if you've heard a heard it in person I, i've heard
2: it's i'm like sitting here thinking harpsichord
7: and how many times i have played in a huge orchestra with a harpsichord and i'm like oh my
1: god that's it that's it yeah. music geeks right. it's <laughs> Yes, music geeks, because the harpsichord, for anybody that's curious, when you press the key, it's going to pluck the string usually with a plectrum. In the past, it was in the Baroque era, it was usually a quill. Then you pluck the string, and so it really doesn't matter like how hard you hit the key, right? You're going to get one dynamic, and you have to use other effects, just like you would use on a pipe organ, right? Because the pressure is fixed. So it's really interesting, because the bandora, it does. It has that sound that can cut through. It's also very it's very warm i did find plenty of recordings of bandura and kobza and the torban videos were really interesting if anybody wants links not just for what do ukrainian instruments sound who is building them and what does it take to build them and how do they compare to other instruments that you know i geeked out on that all week the point i really want to make is there was an article by Kuzma, and I think it was in an American Choral Directors Association publication from 2001. She was writing about Bortnyansky and his choral style and how he studied in Italy and how he used texture. She quotes this very famous French composer named Hector Berlioz because Berlioz was talking about how wonderful Bortnyansky was. It floored me when I saw that. Because if you've ever had the opportunity to see it or go and hear, say, the Berlioz Requiem, Berlioz loves to move people around and put them in all sorts of different places. Having the chance to see, oh wait a minute, these really cool pieces—they were influenced by the Ukrainian, the Misa Solemnis of Beethoven. It was premiered in St. Petersburg, and it was probably led by Dmitry Bortnyansky. He's like one of the one of the big ones. I had a trip tremendous amount of fun geeking out this week and seeing things that I didn't pick up on my study on in my studies long ago as Gina was saying that this Russian invasion and this Russian genocide are creating kind of a resurgence of interest in Ukrainian culture I just had a moment to completely Revisit some of the most exciting pieces and ideas that I'd had the privilege of studying as a musician. And to be able to see, not just to see, to play and to experience and to sense that influence that Ukrainians and Ukrainian culture have had, not just on Russian music, on Western music, and on things that are very near and dear to me. That was amazing. I hope that the work that Ukrainian scholars are doing, because like if you take, I think, I want to say the St. Sophia, they have an archive in Kiev. As of 2020, they were only 10% of the way through the scores that they had in the archive, working through them to identify them and make them accessible for performers. There's a lot of work being done. There's a lot being rediscovered. I hope as we deal with this dark subject of genocide that we can remember not only that we have the privilege and the fun of seeing how these influences from the past have affected us. Also, the music that Ukrainians are making today, I've listened to samples from different genres. It was really, it was some really great stuff. I hope y'all do get a chance to listen to it.
7: When you were talking about now the rediscovery, TKD, of so much of Ukrainian culture, two things came to mind because they are incredibly important in how we acknowledge and advocate against this genocide. One of the things... That has been a problem here in the West, and this was made clear to me early on in the full-scale invasion by a scholar, that a Russian historian expert that I that consult have consulted several times and interviewed several times, Nicholas Rudnitsky of Manor College, his father's a very famous Ukrainian historian in the diaspora, in particular. Nick said to me, the West really got lazy in terms of how it how it has come to know Ukraine, because it's relied upon Western scholarship, it's uh, on Russian scholarship. It's relied upon the Russian narrative. The problem is that's something as we look at Ukrainian culture that we need to be attentive to, that we are hearing Ukrainian culture and encountering Ukrainian culture through the Ukrainian lens, which is going to be diverse. I'm not saying it's monolithic, that we understand who are the experts, who are the artists, because a lot of that culture has been either historically Demonized or subsumed by Russia. It's co opted or condemned, right? Even if you look at, you mentioned Bortnyansky, do a Google search on his name and you're going to see some variations. He's up on the Internet Encyclopedia of Ukraine. You will see in a lot of other entries, Russian composer. And it's, we actually sing in the Ukrainian Catholic liturgy that I attend. We sing several of his musical settings and he's very much considered Ukrainian. It's just something to be aware of as we talk about Ukrainian culture and as we discover it, as most of us here in the who are from the West who don't necessarily have Ukrainian roots, we are discovering it now. Another thing to keep in mind is technology and how it can help preserve culture, you know, especially culture that's under attack in, in war and genocide. And Ukraine has several projects. And one of them is Back Up Ukraine, where they're creating 3D models of a lot of the Monuments and cultural treasures, really the physical ones, so that God forbid that they are damaged. That there is a way to restore them. It, it's interesting now that when you compare, say, this genocide to the Second World War and all of the the cultural plundering that took place, a damage to so many treasures, also the, the cultural plundering, and and also what we've seen, as I just mentioned, in terms of the Taliban destroying. Buddhist statues, we have technology now that allows us to, to map this, to to preserve it so that we can recreate it. We also have technology, and this ties to another genocide and another situation of cultural erasure, that helps us to monitor, monitor the ongoing process of destruction. At Cornell University, they have the, the Caucasus Heritage Watch, which has been tracking Azerbaijan's efforts to erase Armenian culture using a lot of satellite imagery. You can just Google um, Caucasus Heritage Watch, and it should come up. Again, it's, it's an initiative of Cornell, of Cornell University, and it's incredibly important. And, and it, it figured especially with the, the blockade of Nagorno-Karabakh. One of the experts from the from this Caucasus Heritage Watch testified before Congress. I, I just want to invite people to think about. How in many ways we are better positioned at this point in history through satellite technology, 3D, AI, all of these tools that we have at our disposal to to recreate and to preserve. That's something that should be baked into a, a cultural strategy for a group is how do we preserve this? How do we prevent this from being appropriated, destroyed, and how do we preserve it and reconstruct it if that ever happens to us? I think that's important to any discussion of cultural heritage.
2: Yes, it is. Absolutely, UNESCO is doing a lot to to help get that accomplished in Ukraine right now. Uh, let's go to Marcus. He might have fallen asleep. Marcus, are you there? Oh, poor boy, you fell asleep. <laughs> let's go to "For Every Child." I had two quick things. Was the word plunder? I'll come back to it. The other was the the blind bards. My question about the blind bards is. Were they blind people who became bards or were they blinded? The The question about plunder is, is perhaps plunder an appropriate word to describe removing children and taking them away? Is that the plunder of children?
7: Actually, it's interesting that you mentioned that for, for every child because that was... Probably the one part of the genocide convention that most closely approximates culture is the forcible removal of children, the prevention of the birth, but probably more the forcible removal of children. That is considered to be at least some entree or some residual of the the cultural genocide would be in that particular condition because culture is inherent in culture is that notion of transmission, that intergenerational, because a culture isn't something that just one person has. It, it's, there's a communal aspect to culture, and there's also an historical aspect to culture. It has to take place in some period of time. Classically speaking, people will talk about a work culture, but you're talking about, if, if, even with that, which is a more temporary look at culture, you're talking about something that operates over time. And when you're talking about national and ethnic cultures, you are talking about things that operate intergenerationally. The children gets us a little closer in the convention. I had to highlight that because I thought that was really intuitive of you right there. That's you're on to it.
2: <laughs> Any follow-up for every child? About the birds. Does anyone know if they were blind or and became birds or if they were blinded? I have no clue. TKB, do you know? Go ahead,
1: I didn't see any indication of the latter. I I didn't see any indications in in my reading that they blinded people to make them bards. I saw indications that most of them were blind. If we think about a society, the simplest explanation to me would be if we think about a society that doesn't have the same type of resources and opportunities for people with disabilities, right? Because they didn't, this is pre-industrial revolution, right? If you had a disability or you were blind, if you could become a bard, right? That was a way, that was a way to be, that would be a way to be productive, right? Because you had something that you could do. They did have schools and apprenticeships. I did not see any indication they were blinding people. I'm inclined to say is probably that they were that they already were blind and that they could essentially follow in the tradition of Homer and others. Because there's also, too, in ancient Greek literature, there's that tradition of the prophets being born. I don't know if there's a direct link there. No, I did not see any indication that it was anything like, say, the Castrati of 17th and 18th century Europe.
0: I was just doing some quick skimming as well too i 'll add a link from Maidan press in two thousand fifteen it did It does say there that in Ukraine the Bolsheviks hunted down the blind, infirm folk musicians and executed them on the spot without investigation or trial, and that seems consistent. TK, with your research, that it, it sounds like the, the blinding wasn't something, at least it wasn't something done to them by Soviet oppression. They were already blind, and then they were killed by Soviet
9: oppression.
1: Because the Kobzari predated Soviet oppression. That tradition, it goes back, if you, I can, if, I'll try to pull the videos that I have from, I think it's, I was forgetting her first name, her last name is Vixina, and she plays the Torban. There's a Deutsche Welle video on, on YouTube. There's also Taras Kompani, who has spent a lot of time researching and learning to play these old instruments. He would play and sing essentially folk music and some of these barred cult songs, the donkey and things from the Kolbzar. He plays those. I actually listened to a two-hour recital of him at the League V early music festival, even though I couldn't understand any of it. It was amazing. When we have those records or when musicians like that can look back to the 17th and 18th century tradition, they 've got songs that they can play that they know that are even older. The tradition i 'm trying to remember if it went back to the eleventh or the thirteenth century it goes back a long long time that 's why i don 't think that the blinding would not have definitely not have been in most cases, a, a question of Soviet or imperialist action, because this tradition of blind bards memorizing and training to sing these uh, stories it goes back a long way. If you're looking for something that's a little bit, a little bit analogous, you could also look at the work of Benjamin Bagby, who has actually gone back and tried to reconstruct or come up with something that would be close to how the bards and the troubadours in Western Europe would have sung in the Middle Ages. I've actually heard him sing the entire first book of Beowulf in Old English with a harp. It was pretty amazing. Those traditions of wandering minstrels, people with harps telling stories, that goes way back. It goes back into ancient Greek culture and within Ukrainian culture itself. I think it goes back beyond the Renaissance, probably to the Middle Ages. This is old, and so there are some traditions. And I can try to pull up some of the stuff that I read and send it to you. There are some traditions that, particularly in the church music, that they can trace back to the period of Ruse. Um And... Even in some of the music that comes later, there are songs about people from that time period. These bards and that extensive history put the lie to the Soviet propaganda and now the Kremlin propaganda that Ukrainian culture doesn't exist because the church music and the bards, that goes way, way back to before Muscovy.
0: That's an excellent point, TKD. You mentioned something in a background channel that I'm really hoping you can express to the broader audience as well, too, as far as just how much time Ukrainian musicians have really had to do research on their early music because it wasn't safe for many years. Can you just quickly explain that to the audience?
1: Sure, if you look at what um composers went through in the Soviet Union throughout the 20th century, they were monitored. You had to be careful not to step on the toes of the state or not to do anything that would conflict with the Soviet project. Right? That sort of fluctuated over time right as the rulers and everything changed. The general principle was You need to stay off the radar. If you are going to thumb your nose at the censors, for example, you better have plausible deniability. You might want that message to be oblique. You might want that message to have humor. If any of you enjoy listening to some of the better known composers from Russia and Eastern Europe in The Cold War period, you might be familiar with some of the ways that they would try to walk the line because you don't want to end up in the Lubyanka and you don't want to end up in the Gulag. Even if it doesn't get that bad, you don't want your kids to lose opportunities. They were constantly living with those soft pressures. We still today, fortunately, have some of the Ukrainian composers with us from that generation. In fact, one of them is Valentin Silvestrov. I think Princeton sent me a very lovely article about him in the New York Times. If you think about what we know about how the Soviet Union treated composers and artists and tried to bend them to the will of the state, how difficult it was, for example, for the Czech rock band Plastic People of the Universe, which was championed by Václav Havel back in the late 70s. Uh, Those guys were arrested, right? If you're Ukrainian, you want to have access to Ukrainian history. And you go, let's say, into the cathedral. And you pull it out and you go, oh, wow, cool, this is amazing. This is Ukrainian stuff. I really want to share it." what's going to happen. The oppressors are going to destroy it or they're going to co-opt it, that's going to put an end to your project real, real quick. For a long time, they were not able or free to go into the archives in the way that they can go in now because they were part of the Soviet Union. And if they had done that, it would have been very inconvenient for the ruling power. There's another point I think I'd like to make too, and that is that there's a a very thoughtful lecture by, I think it's Rutger Helmers. And it's with the Harvard Ukrainian Research Institute. You can find it on YouTube. He talks about what does make national identity. He went through a bunch of sources, including some reactions. Then in the 19th century, there was actually a memorial concert in St. Petersburg for Tara Shepchenko. There was some Ukrainian music performed. He actually reads from some of the reactions to that and has some excerpts to show how different Russian composers or composers in Russia were considering everything. And one of the things that he pointed out in the beginning of the lecture that really struck me was that at that time, everyone there was thinking within the framework of Great Russia and Little Russia. the Russians themselves were still trying to develop their own sense of Russian identity. When Gina mentions this idea about having this imagination to be able to picture, understand genocide, or I would say even subtler pressures on culture, did some of the people then, did they really understand that, did they understand their own role in what was happening with Ukrainian music? Or was that myth so pervasive in society? I think Gino is absolutely right to say that we need to remember to uh, that we have the opportunity now to listen to Ukrainian uh, voices and to look at the history in a way that is accurate and that fully includes a Ukrainian perspective and acknowledgement of their role and contributions in all the complexity of the history. I also think it's important that we choose to not be too hard on everyone because the Ukrainians didn't have a chance to go through a lot of their archives or do the research that they would have wanted to do, right? We would have been behind on that as well because what were we gonna do? Travel from the West (laughs) to go look through the same things the Ukrainians couldn't do. Uh, the collaborations are happening. They're happening now. We have this opportunity to um, listen. I do remember one of the people in the article, right, just, we've only had 30 years to do this stuff. You guys have had a lot longer. Uh, from what I can tell, it's not just that they're catching on quick in terms of figuring out how to really mine the best out of the trial and error in the Western Early Music Scholarship. They've got a lot of cool things going on their own, too. It's going to be I think great fun to see where that goes. Gina, go ahead. I was going to say, when we'd be remiss if
7: we did not mention when you were talking about TKD, did they have the self-awareness to know if I understood your, the, the impact of what they were doing? We'd be remiss if we didn't mention the Shus, the Deci. I hope I did not butcher that too much. That means those who lived in the 60s. And that was a group of Ukrainian authors, artists, scholars, literati in the 60s who, and they were very forthright and they both publicly and in their work acknowledged the crimes of the, the Soviet communist regime. They rejected socialist realism and they worked very hard and at the risk of their lives and at the cost of their lives, too, to preserve Ukraine's culture and language through their work. We had mentioned, I'm not sure if it was last week or the week before the artist artist's work, i have just really fallen in love with. It's Ala Horshka. And I want to thank, and I always forget her name, unfortunately, the Ukrainian Art History is the channel on, or rather the account on here on X. I highly recommend you follow it because she's so faithful in holding up these artists and, you know, and posting images of their work and giving biographical and explanatory information. It's such an incredible resource. and That's how I discovered Ala Horshka. She was murdered by by the Soviet regime for her work because she she was murdered in 1970 by the KGB. She refused to toe the line. They had actually discovered, she and her friends started discovering just what some of those crimes were, the mass graves. And she actually, having been with some friends who discovered and discovering one of these mass graves, just, it really just reoriented her life. She just became even more and more passionate about her work. She was, you know, thrown out of the union of artists. It was difficult for her to get work. She ended up doing a lot of murals like in, in what's now Donetsk. And unfortunately, we don't know and won't know until the end of the war how many of these murals, these kind of municipal murals are still are still standing. She really, they knew what they were doing. They did it at the risk and often at the cost of their lives and the power of their art. And they both preserve the culture, innovated on it. And one of her most telling works is a beautiful stained glass window of Shevchenko, Tarash Shevchenko, and it holding a, a female figure, and it's called Shevchenko Mother. It was in 1934, and that she actually, the window, I think, went into the vestibule of Tarash Shevchenko's the National University in Kiev. It was destroyed by university officials because the communists did not want it. We do have sketches of that work and studies for that work that shows what that window looked like. I just wanted to make sure that we put that into the record there. Alahorshka and and all of them in the the sixties or the Shishtesiatniki, who,
2: again, put their art, their heart, and their lives on the line for Ukraine. Thank you, Gina. There's so many different aspects that we just never think of. By putting our brains together, we all tend to get all of the different areas that people think of and have knowledge of and can bring them all together and help to educate each other. Queen Dan, the Marza man, it's up. Dan, are you taking cookies out of the oven? No, I keep hitting the wrong
5: button. I'm done to cookies. TKD, I'm sorry. I'm tired. Thank you so much. When you got into the early part of the music in Ukraine and what you discovered in stuff for... What well, we know about the origins of song music and strings and stuff like that i just started crying you brought me to tears uh i i had early uh piano classical music for from i think eight till 16 and then i went into i was lousy i was terrible at it three days a week i got i went to the my music teacher she was really great anyways she was very patient then i went to classical organs a lot of what you talked about in the beginning I had to cover in six years of music theory in high school and um, two years of college. It just, it, you were blowing me away. You're such a bright young lady. I'm just blown away. Your information is spot on and, and it, it just blows me away. You don't realize where genocide can take us. And they can't shut artists up. Writers, painters, music, it all comes out in the end. I don't know what they think. They're going to kill somebody over it. It's all going to come out and they're going to shine. That's what art is about to me. Even the persecuted, it comes through after they're not really dead. They're alive in their art or writings or whatever's left. It never goes away. It lives forever. Thank you so much, TKD. It was, I love to listen to you talk.
2: Thank you, Dan. I'll be sending you my email address so that you can send me some of those cookies. He sent me a picture of cookies that he's baking and it was just not right. It was like double chocolate, pecan, coconut, something that just... I said, please divorce and marry me.
5: No, I only made this... I didn't use coconut tonight.
2: Oh,
9: thanks. I'm not a musician, unfortunately. I just... Uh, I've got all these lacking talents. I do love music. I want to ask if you can help me with something on a much simpler plane, because I ter- heard you talk about bringing harmonies into Ukrainian music. And I also was, as a child, brought up in the Ukrainian, the Western, the Greek rite of the Catholic, Ukrainian Catholic Church. As a child in uh, West Toronto, heard this singing in church. I heard it for years and didn't understand anything about it. There's nothing that you just hear a bar of this on the radio and you know this is Ukrainian. Then when I was in Russia in 2013 and fourteen, like before the war, before my dad, I would never have gone since my dad. I wanted to seek out a Russia see I wanted to know. What is it that makes Ukrainian church music so recognizable? It's all these aunties of mine in Saskatchewan who sing. Like, I, I heard the Ukrainian ladies when I was little. That I was about eight or nine, I was in Saskatchewan for a few summers and heard my aunties in all the country, the farm women, singing and the man. The aunties are like, I just, no way, duplicate it. I tried to ask people... Are they using a different harmonic scale? See, I know very little. I know the theory I learned in elementary and high school. I know that some music, like Scottish music and so on, they've got different scales. Some music has scales with five notes out of our eight. So when I was in Russia, I sought out a church and went there on a Sunday to see if their music would give me, would it harken back to what I remembered from church. I stopped going to church a while ago. I didn't feel I know that I could hear the phrases. What I remember from church is the Easter Mass that went on forever. And you sing boy, me forever and ever, over and over again. And this sound, so I've asked people, what is the sound? Some people have said to me, one answer I got was that the women throw their voice And there is a quality to the women's voice in singing that. So this is not high-cultured classical stuff. It is church music. I wondered if you could tell me, because I didn't feel like it sounded quite the same in in Russia. I was in St. Petersburg and in Siberia, Krasnoyarsk. And I don't know if it's uh, perhaps you know the distinction I'm talking about. Anyway, what is it about Ukrainian church singing that is so distinctive? And I wanted to ask if it's different harmonies, is it different scales, is it this throwing of the voice the way the women do, or some combination or something else? If you can, if you know what I'm talking about, please i'd be i'd appreciate any knowledge you have of that go ahead tkd
1: that's a great question lexicon and i'm relieved to hear that you were asking it because i am still asking it myself and one of the challenges is going to be i think also that we know that ukrainians influenced russian music at least those that went to St. Petersburg and that were working in that context around the imperial court, there may be something in Russian that may have come in from Ukrainian. We have to sort that out. There are a few things that off the top of my head that could make this sound distinct. It could have to do with the placement of the language. I don't know if you've noticed that some languages like Russian and Ukrainian and even I think sometimes Korean, they sound like they sit a little bit lower. It could be from the language in a slightly different way that people use their voices in the language. It could be the sound of the syllables in a language if you sing in choirs where Let's say you sing a piece and let's see, I'm trying to think of a good example. It can be difficult sometimes to get a good singable translation of a work that's written in the other language because so much of the line and the shape and the declamation and the color come from the language that it's originally written in. When you decide, okay, are we going to sing the work in the original language or are we going to... give people a translation or are we going to sing it in a translated version? There are some trade-offs that come with that in terms of sound and sound color. There are things about language locally and generally that can influence sound. I'm curious to hear an example of what you describe as l- throwing the voice. If you, as you're talking about, oh, I wish I could have heard your aunties and your family singing. Oh, that would have been that would have been really something to hear. You may be interested in checking out something called the Polyphony Project. The Polyphony Project started, I know, before the full scale revolution, and I'm not sure if it was before or just after the. My God. It's a bunch of, I want to say, ethnomusicologists, and they went around Ukraine with videos and multiple, they had multiple microphones, and they were recording folk songs, right? So these were essentially like peasants and villagers, and they're all dressed up right, with their Vishivalkas and some of them, because the recordings were done, a few of them were done in 2015, 2017, some of the women uh, that were singing in these groups, they had birth dates from the 1930s. But the Polyphony Project is really amazing because the, they go out into these towns and the people are singing and they're singing harmonies. It looks like there's a way on the website where you can actually dial the levels up and down so that you could hear what the different voices are doing, what the different voices are doing in the texture. You mentioned scales. I'm happy to hear you mention that because Ricker Helmer talked about that in the Harvard Ukrainian Institute YouTube talk. And he had stated that if you're thinking of okay, in 19th, so he's talking about sort of 19th century, St. Petersburg, right? Center of music in the Russian empire. And he was saying that what we perceive as national, he says that's not just a question of fact. He believes that's primarily a question of belief. Many of these musicians in the Russian empire under Russian rule and St. Petersburg, like many others in the Romantic era, they're trying to figure out what makes something nationally Russian. This gets really interesting because you've got a whole bunch of Ukrainians there. Ricker Helmert talks about scales and it turns out that this was completely wrong. The ideas that they had in St. Petersburg, for a while they were under the erroneous belief that something that was diatonic or just the white keys on the piano, that was more pure and more Russian Lysenko who was one of the lead ca- catalogers and researchers and arrangers of Ukrainian folk song in the late 19th century. He's talking about all that, all this crimsonism over there. And really, there, there must be a problem with the, the little Russians. It's all Russian. Clearly, you can see there's a difference between the great Russians that just use normal scales and the little Russians that are using chromatic scales. I would love to actually learn more about it. And that lecture from the Harvard Ukrainian Research Institute that I think Nancy has already put in the nest. It's a good starting point uh, for understanding how complex that is. Uh, yeah, if anybody has any examples of something that uh, to them sounds particularly Ukrainian or any theories about why, uh, please let me know because I don't speak the language yet. I would like to I would like to learn more about.
9: pixie you want to hear my aunties? You just go to any Ukrainian church wherever you are any Sunday. Their descendants are there, not me, of course. Anyway, and so this sound is something distinct. Is a bit might have got on your nerves if you were a kid, sitting through these eternal masses. Now it's just just like everything homes where the heart is and all that. I was wondering. Maybe I w- thought that both the Ukrainians and Russians are singing in church Slavonic. I don't know if it's true or not. The Catholics may have adopted a Vatican too. The Greek Catholics, uh, the Greek rite of the C- Ukrainian Catholic Church, the Russians sure don't because they don't even look at the population and they're behind some a curtain for nine-tenths of the mass. The people, by the way, there's no seats you stand up. Russian Orthodox Church is a terrible thing. No wonder hardly anybody in Russia goes to those churches. Anyway, seems the congregation has little to do with it. I thought they were all using church Slavonic. Maybe they're not. That I just don't know either. I'm glad to hear that you, a person with knowledge in music, are still pursuing this distinctive character of this singing of the congregation is responding to the priest and and they're singing entire songs. And it's, you can get, to, you could hear it any Sunday. It's still there. <laughs> Gina,
2: please tell us, what do you hear on Sunday?
7: I hear Ukrainian. I go to a Ukrainian Greek Catholic church and yeah, so it's not Slavonic, it's Ukrainian. It can be bilingual too, where depending upon the divine liturgy, there's one that's in English with partially Ukrainian, the other that you know is largely Ukrainian. For example, the Christmas liturgy will be largely Ukrainian with some English. That can vary from place to place. If you if you want to learn more about that, someone I would recommend that you study is Father Peter Galadza. His work, and uh, you can find him on the Sheptytsky Institute, or he was also for a while doing a fellowship down at, or he was actually on the faculty at the Catholic University of America. He's he's very well known in Ukrainian liturgical music circles. His work is just incredible. He's both a Ukrainian Greek Catholic priest and he is a theology professor and just fantastic as a liturgical scholar. His work is out there and that's G-A-L-A-D-Z-A,
1: Father Peter Galatsis. I would highly recommend him. Very good. Katie, go ahead. Sensing a little bit of a theme here with our discussion for the past uh, few weeks is because when we were talking before, one of the things that came up was that we don't have to be attorneys or professionals to understand and appreciate our rights and to advocate for them. I think the same is true in music. We don't have to be professional musicians. We don't have to be vocational musicians. In fact, one of the things that I missed the most when I made my transition from music to law was congregational song Playing with the congregation and the exchange that I would have with them in my own churches. It was a more Protestant tradition. I'm so glad, Sicon, and also Gina, that you've shared with us about your experiences with the, the church music. Some of us that are here tonight, we've had the chance to learn to play instruments or to sing with other people. Others of us may still be wondering about those kinds of opportunities or just enjoying listening to music. Remember that whatever posture that you're in, whatever opportunities or interests you may have had or not had, song music just like justice they really are for everyone as we've talked about all of these different types of music right from the classical art music to the aunties you know singing in church or out in the villages to the folk music to the bards we haven't even touched on various contemporary music scenes in ukraine that span a lot of a lot of genres we all have the opportunity to listen to it. We all have the opportunity to enjoy it and to be appreciative of it, to grow in our sense of wonder and of beauty and of risk and admiration for our fellow human beings. You don't have to be a professional or an expert to do that. That's another reason that I'm really grateful that we took the time to pause here before Christmas. I'm especially thankful on Lexicon that you shared those memories of song from your own life and from your own family, because that is something that is valuable and it is worth preserving and it is worth sharing. So thank you very much. Gina, go ahead.
7: Just to and, and that was beautifully said, T K D. And just to and to expand on that, we've talked a lot about music tonight. I do want to keep in people's minds the, the visual arts, dance, which Ukrainian dance is just absolutely fantastic. I've attended many festivals of Ukrainian dance and it is just it's Art in motion. It's absolutely beautiful. Certainly the handicrafts, the fabric arts. And I wanted to keep us focused on just how broad culture is and, and also the intangible aspect, because I really do feel that is an important saying to keep in mind when we speak of culture, not to get too locked into thinking the culture is this museum or this particular framed artwork. We have to understand that it's much broader than that. I wanted to read a little bit from the Convention for the Safeguarding of the Intangible Cultural Heritage, which was the first legally binding international document to focus on that intangibility. It defines intangible cultural heritage as, and I'm quoting, the practices, representations, expressions, knowledge, skills, that communities, groups, and in some cases individuals recognize as part of their cultural heritage. This intangible cultural heritage transmitted from generation to generation is constantly recreated by communities and groups in response to their environment, their interaction with nature and their history, and provides them with a sense of identity and continuity thus promoting respect for cultural diversity and human creativity. at the end quote. The um, analysis goes on to say that this definition includes music, literature, dance, mythology, rituals, handicrafts, and other cultural manifestations. And that actually, there's a connection between that intangible heritage and the identity of the individuals and the communities who are creating that heritage. As I said, I just want to keep those broader considerations in mind as we look to Preserving this, uh, fighting for the rights of culture amid genocide, because genocide, because uh, genociders do target culture. That is part of the process of committing genocide: is to undercut the culture as a way of ultimately killing or eliminating the people, or subjugating and subsuming their identities. As I said, I like definitions. I just wanted to broaden ours here, <laughs> and um. I didn't get to tease you about definitions yet, and you just gave me the opportunity. Well, well, it is important. Again, I, I think that we have to also think of ways in which we can be alert to when culture becomes under attack and ways in which we can, without this language in the Genocide Convention, that we can actually ensure that Russia is held accountable for it attacks upon Ukraine's culture, its cultural heritage, its cultural artifacts, and and its values, and that's part of what's happening because culture is the values are part of that culture, as, as we talked about earlier. In terms of looking at some of the legal tools, I know Nancy's done some research on some of the documents. I don't know if you want to close out this session with a look at now that we've done a deep dive on some of these things. Now, how do we help Ukraine to defend its cultural? Heritage and how do we hold Russia account- uh, accountable for attacks on that heritage and prevent other cultures from coming under this kind of attack?
2: I see D has her hand up real quick. Let's go to D and then we'll go to Nancy to take care of that if Nancy's good with that. Sound good, Nancy? Sounds good. All right, D, go ahead.
0: Oh. Hi. Actually,
4: the previous speaker said largely much of what I was going to say, perhaps in slightly different terms. So I will cede the floor because, oh, sorry, got a terrible cold this end. I have been listening in with a great deal of interest. I remember decades ago in my undergraduate writing a paper About the cultural impact on diversity, on senses of identity, on just where now it's decades ago, and I can't cite the sources that I use now, although I did get a rather good mark. Yes, no, the previous speaker really covered largely what i was going to say anyway so i will stick around to others thank you
2: thank you d
7: go ahead vina i just follow up on what i'd said earlier and it's good to hear you d with that i love your accent (laughs) i wanted to add an important provision this doesn't necessarily relate to ukraine to the discussion more broadly that earlier referenced declaration concerning the intentional destruction of cultural heritage. This is the one that UNESCO adopted back in 2001 after the two Buddha statues were uh, destroyed in Afghanistan. The one thing this does not protect, and this is an important consideration, and I think to be honest, it's one of the reasons where people shy away from from maybe talking about cultural genocide. We've mentioned earlier that Lemkin, and in, in, the, in the framing of the Genocide convention, there were forces that were in, in that process that were saying, even the Lincoln wanted it in there. It was the sense of, oh, this is gonna be awkward for us if we are gonna be as colonial powers accused of having done these things of trying to eliminate minority cultures. Another consideration here is the fact that, that declaration does not protect things that are cultural practices that have been deemed universally harmful. Some of those things include female genital genital mutilation polygamy, female infanticide, child forced marriage, and honor killings. Now those are cultural things, and this is the uncomfortable part of culture is that there are things in culture that are not palatable between cultures. We have to look at those if we're going to look at how do we preserve and protect cultural heritage amid genocide and seek justice for that, that that cultural heritage justice. That's a, it's an issue. I just want to put it out there. This is not the case in Ukraine, because none of these things apply to Ukraine. As a broader discussion, that is something that we need to keep in mind since we are talking about genocide broadly as well. I just I wanted to make that clarification to keep our, our definitions as complete as possible. I can throw it back to Nancy for some of the documents that you were able to pull up in this regard. Thanks, Gina. I'm trying to find what I had tagged in in one of
0: the documents, which was the current status of cultural genocide under international law. One of the areas that it focused on was the cultural protections. And again, we talked about UNESCO for what they describe as non-movable cultural artifacts. And the other part is Let's see, the 1970 Convention on the Means of Prohibiting and Preventing the Illicit Import, Export, and Transfer of Ownership of Cultural Property, which is a place that a lot of society struggles with. And we hear very regularly about stolen or trans- illegally transferred cultural property that ends up in a museum somewhere and then. There is a great deal of time, and attorneys make a bunch of money with litigation to return them to their rightful owners. And of course, a recent example of that that we saw was that when when Crimea was first invaded by Russia, there were artifacts from Crimea that were on loan to, and I forget which country in Europe had... The museum collection at the time, they were on loan to a European museum, and Russia and Ukraine spent many years
2: in court over where those artifacts would be returned to, and it was just... Nancy, lost connection. That would be my thing. I'm thinking that she's going towards a Scythian gold that was actually just recently returned to Ukraine just within the last few weeks. That was something that was fought over in court for a long time, and that that literally was just in the last few weeks returned to Ukraine. Beautiful, beautiful pieces. Yes, Nancy Crafts, just will return as soon as you can. Gina, go ahead.
7: Sure. I just wanted to, and I mentioned this earlier in the discussion, and I know we're running close to time. So I did want to mention that there is a nexus. The culture is not; it, it's not a standalone. It, it with other aspects of human existence, which come under attack in the case of genocide as Russia is waging in Ukraine. One of those things is religion and religious freedom across Ukraine in in any area of contact with Russia is in danger uh, because Russia is actively persecuting religions. And in persecuting religions, (laughs) including bombing their own churches that are rather churches that are still leaning towards Moscow, what they are doing as well is not just attacking religious freedom and practice they are also attacking cultural heritage because the the physical manifestations the icons the churches the vestments the handicrafts also the practices the texts the songs all of those things are also culture they're part of culture through religious expressions. It's a double whammy what Russia is doing. They're attacking religious beliefs. You would also argue that it's a, a set of charges for cultural genocide. You couldn't, of course, argue that right now under the genocide convention as it stands because it doesn't have that provision. There there are places in international law where you could argue that as well. It's This is all very layered and dense and interconnected. There's also the sense too and Lenkin also looked at this as well, is the sense of ethnicity and culture, and race and culture. These are all overlapping layers. In recent years, many of those terms, actually historically, a lot of those terms have been contested. It just gives you an idea of the density and complexity of what we're talking about here, that culture is not this kind of standalone. We don't wanna oversimplify it. It's densely interwoven into so many aspects of existence, that is what just compounds the tragedy and the horror of what Russia is doing in Ukraine. Because when it attacks, just to take one example, when you start to ban the language and 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 passportize an occupied area, you're tearing at the very identity of people and you're doing it to change the trajectory of that people's history by trying to Co-opt that younger generation and future generations, so that the, there is a break with that culture. This is in- incredibly evil and devious, and we need to see it in its full implications. It's not just happening at the moment. This is trying to change the course, the historical course of an entire people, and not for so the good. What we're talking about here, as I said, has huge implications. It's very dense, multi-layered, very interconnected. There's going to be a lot of overlap. Every single Missile and drone and information attack. Every attack that Russia launches just against Ukraine just reverberates, and they know it too. It just reverberates on so many levels throughout Ukrainian society, culture,
2: and future history. It absolutely does. It's like, when I started to think about how we were going to cover this in a week, and it's just like, there's no way we could cover this in three hours there's so many levels and so many depths and so many areas and all of that. What I, who I really want to hear from now is I actually want to hear from Ben. Ben, I, you may have some very unique input on this. And I've noticed you listening for a while. How are you this evening?
6: Hi, Prince. I don't know how you know unique I am on any of this because you people have been talking for a long time. I can add only a few things. And I don't even know if you brought this up. There's like on the molecular level and the bigger level. On the molecular level, level uh, I, I'll tell you some of the things I know about, which is at the very beginning of the war, the Ukraine, you, the government, also the powers that be in the art world, they were afraid the Russians would uh, destroy their artwork in the museums. They've had a project to protect paintings and sculpture and artistic works, physical artistic works. I, I know a little bit about it. I can't really talk too much about it. It was pretty elaborate because part of protecting a painting, for example, you just, how do you do it? You need boxes for it. It turns out they had to, and this is not widely known. So they had to get boxes to create, they had to create up art in order to take it out of the museums and places. It turns out that most of that stuff, I think the wood or the crates are made in Spain or France, I forget which. And there was like this route. I think into... Spain. Then it, you could be right because this is not my area, but I know I, in the kinds of things I do, I learn things. There was this route as people were leaving Ukraine, there was this route of boxes or basically pieces of boxes that the, the, and there was a warehouse in Poland to get into Ukraine. It was like this real, Rush, and there were a few people who were doing it. One guy who volunteered and took it upon himself. It was like a warehouse where they had these bo- just the boxes themselves. And stuff was the stuff was boxed up. And at first, some of it left the country because they didn't know if the Russians were going to, how far they would go. Some of it left the country. Then, when it looked when it looked like they weren't going to go that far, that stuff came back into the country. I know this on really good authority. I I couldn't have made this up because they all couldn't even think this way. And they have places where stuff is stored that they don't want wrecked. And when it comes like to the churches, at first you can look at like in some places, some of like the stained glass, it was a progressive thing that at first it was just like get anything up in front and, and also for the statues. And they would have these little cages or like something sort of temporary, now it's heavier stuff like uh, heavier boards to protect the, uh, the exterior of churches. So the physical, so the, and then, and so the physical stuff, a lot of the physical stuff is protected for a long time. And I, I, it's like, I don't even know what I can talk about. So I just should just leave it at that. Because I wanted to, the reason is I, someone told me about this. So I started going down that rabbit hole. Because it's an interesting thing to to be part of a film as far as, because I'm interested in the preservation of the culture and the culture itself. That's art and that's a physical thing. I just thought I, I would mention that in this discussion. And as far as other things, I'll just toot my horn with the film that I made. If you watch my film, because what I think you're right, that that culture is interweaved throughout life, throughout the life of a person or a family. You go to church, you have like now Christmas, they change the date for the whole calendar. And so if you watch my film, because I really wanted to make an authentically Ukrainian experience, there's all kinds of the Ukrainian culture is all through it. There's a wedding, they like Ukrainian wedding, the traditional wedding is unique to Ukraine. They have this crown that they that they put on the head of the bride and groom. And There's like something called a rushnik that they step on. If you're going to have a church wedding, a proper church wedding, Ukrainian way, they have this kind of way of doing it. I have, it, and I don't draw any attention to it in the film. If you watch the film, you'll, I, I, it, there's this interweaving of, the, of people's ordinary lives, just like anybody's ordinary life, with who they are. It's their identity, and and they know that stuff. And I'll just finally say. Everybody in Ukraine knows that this is what it's about. They know it's not about Donbass and Crimea alone. And it's why there's, they're not willing to just say, okay, they, Ukraine, for any reason, Russia could stop the war and, and, and just take a piece of the country, even if they were okay with that, because they know that their very existence is at stake. That's why they're not going to give up. And that. That comes across with everybody. I, it just absolutely everybody, except the people who you know were pro Russian. I just want—I know your time is up on this, so I just want to—I really came on just to tell you about the the art getting boxed up in this whole industry that they had at the beginning. To uh, it was only a few people, by the way. They took it upon themselves. One of the people who really started that ball rolling is an art dealer. He realized that was like something that he just needed to make happen. And he took it upon himself to get that organized. It was not a government project. I don't know if it ever was. The art museums got involved. It was this one guy who, one guy, and then he got another guy involved. They just said which some. They just thought that it was an important thing to do. That's all that I want. That I really have to say.
2: It is a very important thing to do. Actually, if you look on the UNESCO website, UNESCO is now assisting with this kind of thing also to help to preserve the. Uh, the paintings, and they're helping to digitize some of the art, doing 3D architecture of the buildings that are historical. They're doing all kinds of things. They're helping to basically put protections in place for some of the outside monuments and and those kinds of things. Yeah, there's a lot. Knowing that they did that all, it doesn't surprise me that they did that all in the first days of their own initiative. They are getting help, though, with it now from UNESCO and from the government, I believe, from what I've been able to read. Gina, go ahead.
7: I was just gonna say, Ben, first of all, congratulations on the film. Also, when I was in Ukraine this past summer, I was seeing the, the boxed up memorials on the streets of the view and my, my friend and guide was saying, oh, that's one of this monument and that monument, and there they are all crated up with sandbags around certain areas to to prevent them from being damaged in the event of an attack. The other thing that occurred to me, too, was we're wrapping up, so this isn't something that we can really get into in any kind of depth. In terms of the culture, if you look at it with what Russia is, the way it's coming at this with the state and the Orthodox, the Russian Orthodox Church in lockstep, where really, unfortunately, the Russian Orthodox Church has has become an instrument of the state and the way it's trying to co-opt the entire world's view, both of the present life and of eternity, it wants to be the more restrictive and repressive Russia has become, even to its own citizens, the more it wants total control of life, art, expression, fate. It's really trying to co-opt people 360, its own people under author- authoritarian rule, and impose that on... Ukraine. One thing I would point out, when you have people saying, oh, aren't they, aren't Ukrainians and Russians all the same? Aren't they the brothers that Putin said in his essay that they were? Nothing could be further from the truth. You can point to what Russia is, in fact, doing to its own people as an indicator of what, God forbid, it ever succeeded. It won't, because we won't let that happen. If people were, if it were to, if Ukraine were again, God forbid, to concede any territory. It would just be a question of time as to how much and how quickly Russia would just completely try to destroy Ukrainian culture. That it's not just a question of giving up a little land and everyone's going to be a good neighbor. No, Russia wants complete control. Under Putin, it wants complete control of its subjects, and they are just that, subjects' lives from the, the cradle to the grave and everything in between, that's what they're going for here. That reflected in their culture and that's what they want to impose on the rest of the world, including Ukraine. As I said, this is a very holistic approach. There's the holistic approach that Lemkin had in understanding genocide, and there's the holistic undertaking of genocide as we're seeing Russia wage in Ukraine.
6: Can I, is there time for me to mention just one more thing? If there's not, that's, I understand. People in Ukraine, with my experience, from my experience, are really aware of, like moving the calendars from the, like Christmas is is one thing. It takes a lot of, it takes form in many ways. I'll give you two examples. One of them is that we made a poster using a Cyrillic, that said to the zero line in Ukrainian with a Cyrillic alphabet. It was a guy in the US that did it. And, And then I showed it to the guys in Ukraine and said, we can't do that because they, because that font, the font was designed by a Russian. It's fairly well known that fonts, a uh, Russian font. They don't want to use a font designed by a Russian um, none. No, none of us would even know it. They're that sensitive to not everybody. Then there's singers now don't record in, Ru- in Russian language. Generally, there's like a singer Duk- who has sung songs in Russian she's re-recording them now in Ukrainian. She's Ukrainian. And it was like, she's controversial in some ways. So she's now recording the same songs in Ukrainian so that they can be done that way. I just wanted to to lay those things out there. Um,
2: Gina, go
7: ahead. Real quick and, and great points. Great points, Bennett. Two things came to mind as you were talking. One, when you were mentioning the font again, If you do Google searches, you'll come up with stuff that is getting labeled that's actually Ukrainian pick the topic, or especially if it is a piece of material culture or handcrafts. And it's something for us to be sensitive of is that we don't have all the nuances if we're not immersed in the culture or have good guides to take us through. So that's one thing to be sensitive of whenever we approach any culture, to make sure that we're, you know, looking at what is my... What are my preconceptions? What is my experience with this? What what do I know about it? What don't I know about it? Probably that's the thing to really keep in mind. What don't I know about this? And what might or might not offend? Be very attuned to that. The other thing too, is to not make the mistake of thinking that everyone in a culture is all the same with it or or has the same buy into it or that there aren't variations. One case in point that comes to mind, this is particularly true when we look at the indigenous peoples of North America. It's very easy for people to make the mistake of thinking that you're talking about multiple peoples, and people think, "Oh, you all wear headdresses like plain various Plains Indians tribes do." I live in an area where our, our most people I know who have any Native American descent are either Lenape or, or Cherokee. That's not part of their heritage necessarily. We have to be sensitive to the nuances to our preconceptions or lack of knowledge, who's our guide into that culture and do they have an agenda? As I said, especially when it comes to a culture like Ukraine, where you've had oppressive regimes try to crush it, make sure that your guide to that culture is not someone who's reflecting that worldview. And don't expect everyone in the culture themselves, then you would certainly know this from just having been there, to all be the same or all think that everyone is, there are going to be people that don't necessarily, who are Ukrainian, who don't necessarily like the the signature Ukrainian foods. They may say, yeah, we make that in our family. I don't need it. Or that particular song, yes, I know it's very important. That's not my cup of tea. That And that's fine. That doesn't mean that they are less loyal to their culture or that they are abandoning it. Think of, when your own culture, what do you and don't you like about it? All of these discussions become, I think, very much moments for both Tearing for the other and advocating for the other who is being genocided, also reflections on our own selves. They prompt us to think more critically about ourselves and hopefully, above all, more impassively about all of our fellow human beings.
0: Very well said, Gina. One of the things that I want to point to is when we talk about preserving the physical heritage, 60 Minutes in mid-November did some very good segments on what they described as the heritage war and on protecting the museum pieces and things like that. Ben, a lot of what you were describing, they touched on in that 60-minute segment in mid-November, and I do have a link to that in our mega thread as well. And I agree with you that the there really has been a ramp-up of Ukrainians focused on their culture, their heritage. One of the little factoids I saw earlier today was that in 2023, Ukraine's book production increased by 73% according to their Ministry of Culture. That is, to me, another indicator of a bunch of a bunch of folks who are focused on their culture, their heritage, and this is me, and I'm not backing down from that. I, the last thing I had was actually just a a little stray note that I had seen last week that I hung on to, and it's basically from a fella called Eagle Watch, and the graphic has Ukraine has taught me, and then you fill in the blanks from there, and. What Sindel posted really reflects so much of what we talked about today. Ukraine has taught me to believe in myself and my capabilities more than others' disbeliefs in me. Ukraine has taught me good will overcome evil. Ukraine has taught me culture, history, and heritage are worth fighting for. Ukraine has taught me there are people with good values still in the world, Ukraine has taught me that heroes really exist. What has Ukraine taught you? I just wanted to share that with
2: you guys. I think that puts a really good cap on this evening. And what has Ukraine taught me? Ukraine has taught me countless things. Ukraine has given me countless things. And I know that sounds weird. I I spend a lot of time giving my time, energy, and effort for Ukraine. Ukraine has given back a multitude of times over what I have ever given to Ukraine. I I will be I I am forever enriched for it and I will never be the same. Wednesday night, Ukraine gave me a Christmas spider that arrived today. I really freaking love my Christmas spider. I'm so excited for it. One little thing that I just was going to say for anybody who does not remember or may have missed it, an important event that happened regarding ukraine back in july of 2022 this was due to the ongoing war and its negative impact on this tradition culture of ukrainian borscht cooking has been inscribed in the unesco list of intangible cultural heritage in need of urgent safeguarding on july 1st 2022 That was just one little piece of information I came along today, and I thought it would be a really good example of something that can be so intangible. Because I guarantee you, every Ukrainian you talk to, when you ask them who's the best borscht they've ever had, they're going to say their grandma or they're going to say their mom. And you go into five Ukrainian houses, and you're going to get five different borscht. It's all borscht, and it is an intangible intangible tradition and an intangible piece of Ukrainian culture that must be, must be protected. Gina, any last words? That did sound right.
7: I echo what you're saying, that Ukraine has given me so much. We came together in the space for a tragic reason, Russia's full-scale invasion, which of course continues attacks that have gone on throughout history and especially in 2014. God willing, we can use this time to to really and truly live out never again, that may this be the last genocide this planet ever sees, that we get this right, that we do what we need to do to support Ukraine, to end Russia's aggression, to make sure it never happens again, and to help in any way we can Ukraine to live out its destiny as a nation and as a people, which has made already a tremendous contribution to the world and which will continue to do that. I'm just very grateful to the people of Ukraine, for those Ukrainians that I know, for everyone in this space,
2: and Slava Ukraini! We will see you all next week on Understanding Genocide in Ukraine. There are still so many things to cover, so many topics to cover, so many reports to cover. I think I found two or three more reports this week, and we still haven't gotten through the report on the children being taken to Belarus. We can actually spend another hour talking about things that have happened to children in Ukraine this week. I think Gina and Nancy probably need to head to bed. Mockers is urgent for her booms in her numbers so good morning mockers. how are you today
10: morning i did just want to join in and tell you what ukraine has taught me if you would like well, ukraine huh? taught, yeah ukraine has taught me that it's perfectly okay to be stubborn because goodness me aren't they it's also taught me that an individual can make a difference small people getting together to do big things that I think that is part of Ukraine's strength. It really is that the people pull together to make things happen. And uh, they're teaching the rest of the world this, I think, that, I don't know. I've been very solitary pretty much in most of my life. When I say that I've got friends and stuff and I've got family. I've never been outside of my own bubble. I've never joined a community group, for example. Or never got together with a group of people to make something happen. The cl- closest thing I would say was I joined a sports team when I got ill that that stopped. It's the stuff that you think that feels impossible. Yeah. If you band together and talk to the right people, nothing is impossible. That's what Ukraine has told me that if you really strive for something, it's not impossible. Nothing is impossible. In fact, it's it's important that if you believe in something, if you uh, believe strongly enough about something, that you talk to people, make that effort, get outside of your circle, bust out of that comfort zone. Write that letter, even though you think it might be ignored. Because um, this morning, for example, first thing I saw when I opened up this app was a little message from Ben Wallace saying, Tonight, me and the mayor of London have written to the central government and a uh, whoever, asking them to adapt the scheme for 4 by 4s to include donations to Ukraine. The power to do this is now in these two persons' hands. So that's Michael Gove and Mark Harper. Let's get this done for New Year. Then he's tagged Michael Gove and the transport secretary. That wasn't a celebrity standing up and asking for this to be sorted out. That wasn't a member of parliament even. No, it was people, regular people who decided, you know what? This is silly. We're going to get together and do something about it. They've identified a need and a way to fill that need, which would actually be really sensible. It looks like it might happen. It really looks like it might happen. All I'm going to say is massive congratulations to the people for starting that. Also, well done to anybody else who's got involved because it's created a movement. It's created something for us all to lean into and help push it. Look at that. A good idea can become a reality if you just talk to the right people and just make enough noise.